Uh, Numbers 11, I want you to look again. Verse 1 of our text, there's an interesting little detail given about the people's complaints over food and even water back in the wilderness. Verse 1, and when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And then it adds this little detail, and the Lord heard it. Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment, because according to the book of Psalms and the New Testament Gospels there when Jesus fed the, the multitude in that wilderness, not only did the Lord hear their complaints and their doubts, He also remembered them hundreds, even thousands of years later. After all, many of them never repented of it. You'll notice on the screen, Psalm 78 is one example. Verse 19 says, Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Now note that. Not will He provide it. Not how He's going to provide it. They said, can He? And the next two verses, verse 20 and 21, says, Behold, He smote the rock, and the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. And he give, Can He give bread? Can He also? Can He provide flesh for His people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. Here in Numbers 11, you'll notice again verse 4. It says, the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who? Who shall give us flesh to eat? Now, wait a minute. What? Who? It's like, oh, you know, sure, he defeated the armies of Pharaoh, and he divided the Red Sea, and oh, sure, he sent down these amazing locusts and hail and frogs and a whole host of miracles and wonders and delivered us from the world empire. And yeah, he gave us water from a rock and guided us with a pillar of fire. But that was then, and this is now. And the question is, who? In fact, the question is, who shall give us flesh to eat? And if there's a who, can he? Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And yes, beloved, the Lord heard this. And centuries following that wilderness journey, the Holy Spirit reminds us that he also remembered it. Still remembers it. And as the text shows, he sort of separates it and distinguishes it from all of the other contemptuous questions that were, they were known for asking. Verse 4, who shall give us flesh to eat? And then they had the gall to say this in verse 5. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. Now wait a minute, the fish is what you remember? And somehow in Egypt, in bondage, beaten by taskmasters. Somehow you ate this amazing fish, quote, freely. You see the word there? In Egypt we ate this fish freely. That's some memory. That is a state university level revisionist history. <laughs> and beloved, inasmuch as our Lord heard and never forgot their words, He also wants us all to learn from them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I ask God you'll help us, please. We need your help to have, our, have ears to hear what the Spirit hath to say to each and every one of us. And so we open our hearts as best we can in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Four lessons this morning I want us to consider very carefully in the context of this very familiar story carried throughout all of the Bible. And the first thing you'll notice, number one, is a lesson of desire. Look at verse 5. We remember the fish. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, and the cucumbers, and melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything wrong with melons? How about watermelon in July? Hallelujah, nothing wrong with that. Cucumber? Fish? Of course not. God created those very things to correspond with the desires that you have, which He also created. They were thirsty. God gave them water. It is a reminder that their desire, if you will, that their natural inclination for thirst was never a sin. Neither was their hunger. You ever notice how the Bible, how God himself describes this manna? Look at verse 7. And the manna was as coriander seed. You've seen coriander seed, little round pearls, except these are white, as you'll see in a moment. And the color thereof was the color of bedellium. That is sort of like, um, almost like ice, snow. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills and beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. Elsewhere in the Bible, this manna is called the corn of heaven. It's also called angel's food. So you know what? They're hungry. God satisfied their desire. Not only that, God added to that sort of sweet bread, this manna roll, some fresh poultry. Look at verse 32. Would you skip ahead? And the people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. God sent those quails, as you know. This is their version of our very own plentiful USDA chicken. In fact, you realize the Bible says that they got this food every day except for the Sabbath. You do the math, chicken plus bread and closed on Sundays. Chick-fil-A sandwich. (laughs) Right there in the Bible. I remember there was this McDonald's in Georgia and and, uh, they put up a sign that said, we sell crispy chicken sandwiches on Sunday. Chick-fil-A was right next door to them. And they put up a sign that said, our ice cream machines are always working. So that was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) yes God provided manna God provided meat from heaven and he did so because their desire for food at least the natural desire for water and all good things is not a sin and neither of course is yours when the Lord Jesus won his great battle against Satan in the wilderness the Bible says that afterward quote he hungered the sinless son of God desired food From the cross, he cried out, I thirst. He yearned for water. Mark 11, 12 says that on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, quote, Jesus hungered. And what did he do? He walked right toward a fig tree to fulfill that desire for food. In John chapter 4, when the Lord Jesus was tired, it says he sat by a well while his disciples went into the town to, quote, buy food. And when a woman showed up to draw water, he asked her for a drink. Why? Because hunger and thirst and weariness and the need for companionship are perfectly acceptable. They are normal, and sometimes they're even honorable for a child of God. In other words, it is not that God doesn't want to provide 
the opposite. Psalm 68, 19, He daily loadeth us with benefits. It is not that He resents your desires for good things. In fact, He created the desire and the good things to meet them. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who satis- He satisfieth thy mouth with good things. You say, but yeah, Pastor, a table in the wilderness, a table, abundance. Yes. Psalm 23, Thou preparest a table before me. It goes on to say, My cup runneth over. Psalm 104, Thou mayest give them their meat in due season. And I love this line. It says, And he openest thine hand. He openest thine hand and are filled. We are filled with good. In Matthew 7, when Jesus said, What man is there of you? What man of you? If his son asked for bread, will he give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Jesus said, if ye then, being evil, you as sinners, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him. In other words, nobody outgives God. He's a better father than all of us. However, that's the very thing that highlights the next point. The next truth in text, we said, number one, there's the desire. The second thing you'll notice, number two, is their discontentment. Look at verse 6. But now, they said, our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all. Now, remember, the Bible tells us early that they're crying, so <laughs> there's nothing at all. Beside this manna before our eyes. Yes, then therefore God sends them meat. And you know what it says in verse 33? Look at that. And while the meat, while the flesh, the quail was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people. You see, beloved, it's not that they desired something. It is that as soon as God, as soon as God marvelously, wonderfully provided it, it exposed their hearts. They were never gratified. They were never contented or pleased with what God gave them. As soon as God provided water, immediately they clamored for bread. And as soon as God gave them bread, the corn of heaven and angels' food, immediately they actually despised it. And they clamored and demanded meat. And as soon as God gave them meat, the wrath of God was kindled. You know why? Because as soon as they got the meat in their mouths, their heart was already accusing God. Look at verse 5. We remember the fish, fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. In Egypt? Look at verse 18. Say unto the people, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord. God hears it all, including the tears. Saying, who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was, look at this, well with us. In Egypt. Folks, it was well with us? In other words, okay, God gave us water out here. And okay, God gave us some bread. Yeah, God gave us some quail, but oh man, those onions and those cucumbers back in Egypt. That's what we really miss. So you see, folks, their discontentment at every single provision of God proved 
their dissatisfaction with God, the provider. Let's put it in contemporary terms, okay? Okay, God provided me a car, but it's old. Okay, God's provided me a job, but it's really boring. Okay, God provided me a home, but it's drafty. Okay, God provided me a wardrobe, but it's small. Always looking to what you don't have. There was snow in Tennessee this last week. And our college young people were sending me all kinds of pictures. Both crownies and the folks at Liberty. And it was cute. One of the pictures I received came from Priscilla. And it was of our old hometown. when We first moved there in East Tennessee. A place called Strawberry Plains. And the snow was everywhere. And I have pictures at home of our home. Just, it looked exactly like that. Our little house was built in the 1930s. And in those days, these old farmhouses, you might have bedrooms like ours did that we lived there. But you won't find in any of those bedrooms one thing, a closet. Not a single closet in a single bedroom. And if there was an old timer anywhere around, John Moore can tell you this with his first home up there in, up there in uh, Tennessee as well. They can tell you in North Carolina that you didn't need one. The old timers, you didn't need a closet. Not in those days. Because you had, your, you had your overalls for farming, and somewhere on a hook, you had your only other change of clothes for Sunday go to meeting or maybe to go into town. Now, I'm just saying, I'm not saying we want to go back to those days, but I do want to say this, compare that landscape in America to modern homes today. Because now, the first thing people ask if they're looking around is not, is there a closet? Is there a walk-in closet for my wife big enough to play tennis in? <laughs> right? And, and that may well be your provision. It's kind of mine right now, to be honest with you, even in the townhouse we live in. But here's the thing. The children of Israel were not content with what they had. And they were never content with whatever provision God gave them. You know, one of the many, many tropes that are out there these days, one of the bigger ones right now is something that's called, quote, unpleasable fan base. These are people in America, human beings, fans of whatever franchise, who no matter what the creators behind the franchise do, whether it's Marvel or Star Wars or the Miami Dolphins, for example, the fan base is never happy and will always complain. They could pour three, four hundred million dollars into their product and to try to give them what they want, but they're never happy. The children of Israel were the first, largest, most unpleasable fan base of all time. And so much so that they said they would rather go back to Egypt, which was slavery, which was bondage, taskmasters beating them. Now, folks, you do realize what the lesson, therefore, of discontentment really is in this wilderness journey. In fact, it is that if your heart is not right with God, now please hear me very carefully. If your, your individual heart is not right with God the provider, then even if he gives you everything you ask for, you ask for this, he gives it, you ask for this, he gives it, it will never be enough. And you in your pew right now will never 
ever be content. However, if your heart is right with God, the provider, then he's enough. Look at verse 9. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. God gave them better than what they desired. And now they're pouting. The Bible says they are weeping. And that's what brings us to the third lesson in the text. Number one is desire. Number two is discontentment. Number three, I want you to notice there's a lesson of doubt. That is unbelief. Look at verse 23, would you? And the Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Now, folks, I want you to hear this. Please hear this very carefully. Because honestly, this is really the central core message of this entire story. Why were they discontent? Why were they always clamoring and, and forgetful and always murmuring against God and then judged by God? It's really for the same reason that any of us as believers might be. You'll notice on your screen again that text in the Psalms. It says in verse 20, Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel. Why? Verse 22, the next verse says what? Because. Because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. The next time it says that in verse 32 of the same text, for all this they sinned still and believe not for his wondrous works. You see, folks, in spite of all of the signs and all of the wonders back in Egypt, in spite of the fact that he had delivered them from centuries of bondage, they still doubted him. Who can You brought us out here, they said, to die of thirst. God gives them water. It's miracle water. And they doubted. Our flesh is dried up and he gives them meat and they still believe not while the food's in their mouth. Can God, who shall give us flesh to eat? If you read and study this entire narrative, you're going to find something. You will see that the reason why God judged them while the food was yet in between their teeth, as the Bible says, in their mouths, is that even at that very moment, they did not believe the promises of God. What's the next thing? Their mouths are full, but their heart is empty. Our family used to have a little Yorkie named Winston. He was a cute dog. Gave us all a lot of joy. He was always happy to see me when I came home from work. And yet, not a single moment did he ever trust me or any of us and of course I know this because despite the fact that day after day week after week moment after moment month after month I provided and cared for him literally bathed him groomed him fed him walked him 
daily water, daily food, car rides, belly rubs. Since he was a puppy. And yet, every time I put food in his bowl or a piece of steak by the table or gave him a big T-bone, every time he hunkered over it, if I just so much as put my hand towards it, he'd go, (laughs) dude, I just gave you that hot dog off the grill. I'm the one who put it down there, and you're going to, at me. He would show his teeth. I'd just go like this. Like, what? That's some nerve. For one thing, he was a little rat, basically, when he was wet. He was just a rat. I could have squished him like a bug. And for another, we got him at a puppy mill. We salvaged him. He never once ever did a thing for his own provision. But somehow he growls at the hand that just gave him the food that's in front of him. Zero trust. Zero faith. But Christians are like that. God says to you this year in 2024, I'm going to have to move this. He comes in, he says, I'm going to replace. No trust. No faith. No reliance or contentment. You know, if you have a closet in every bedroom of your home, and maybe one's a walk-in closet, and you can play soccer in there, But your great-great-grandma or your great-grandma who was happy and content and faithful to God till the day she went home, never even heard of such a thing? Maybe it's not what you have, but it's who you trust. Maybe it's not what's been in your mouth, but what's in your heart. They believed not God nor trusted in His salvation. And yes, it is true. Everything in the Christian life, everything, goes back to your level of faith and trust in your Father. A.W. Tozer once wrote, I thought about him this morning because Brother Desmond's um, recovering from a surgery and Tozer was his best favorite preacher, teacher. He once wrote these words, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think about that because he has another line right after it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and the most important thing we can ever do when we think about God is believe what he has said. And you know something, beloved? He said a lot. He said a lot about church. Do we believe him? He said a lot about child rearing. Do we believe it? He has said a lot about selflessness in marriage, about our testimony, about finances, trials, patience, prophecy, priorities. God has said a lot, and there is nothing more important with all that he has said in this book than to simply believe it. 
trust his word. We said, number one, there's a lesson of desire. Number two, a lesson of discontent. Number three, a lesson of doubt. Finally, number four, I want you to notice there's also a lesson in this story of design. There's a lesson of purpose and praise God. There always is. Look at chapter 10, would you? Just before this, verse 29. And Moses said unto Hobab, the son of Raguel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it you. Come with us and we will do thee good. For the Lord hath spoken good concerning Israel. Now wait a minute. Notice that Moses here and everywhere always refers to the covenant of God. We're journeying. We're going somewhere. We're going to a place that God promised Abraham centuries before. This is the covenant. Pastor, what design, what purpose, what plan is this covenant? It's the same one that you're a part of. It is ongoing to this very moment. It is the same covenant that we have studied on these Wednesday nights for weeks and even months And last summer, it's the same covenant we studied in the book of Revelation, which is a reminder that God is going to keep it, and He's going to keep all of His promises. You see, just because they didn't believe Him in the journey doesn't mean that He wasn't faithful. Pastor, do you know that according to the latest Gallup poll, Less Americans are going to church today than in 1957 that it's gone from 91% to 58% in America? Did you know that? Really? Do you know how much that changes the truth about God and His Word? Zero percent. Zero percent. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we believe not, if we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. Now, don't misunderstand. Their unbelief and their disobedience led to severe judgment. This very wilderness being prolonged all these years, 40 years, was a consequence of their unbelief. They had to learn to trust so that God used that wilderness to send them to school, to accomplish His will, to remove their blindness, and to prepare them for Canaan. Little country boy went to his very first day of school, first grade, way out in the country. Didn't even know about a school. First day of school. And when he got home, his mother said, how'd you do, Johnny? And he said, I don't think I did so good, Mama. They want me to come back again tomorrow. (laughs) Well, when it comes to our school of faith and obedience and growth and holiness, we have to go back tomorrow. We're in a wilderness. This whole world is a wilderness. The good news is our teacher knows exactly what he's doing, and his design is perfect. Can I show you something, and then we'll close? Chapter 13. All this doubting, all this sinning, all this discontent, all this judgment, all this pandering and pining go back to Egypt. Chapter 13, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall you send a man, every one a ruler among them. Go to Canaan. So that you see, in spite of their failings and their fears and their faults, God's still keeping His promise.
They're going to the promised land. In some ways, this wilderness was necessary. But do you notice, by chapter 13, it is not forever. It may seem unpleasant, but it is not unproductive. Can he furnish a table in the wilderness? Well, yes. Can he? Who? Can he provide meat? Yes. Will he yet, one day, in eternity, provide a table? Oh, yes. There is nothing too hard for the Lord, and his hand is not shortened. The question is, on this first month of a brand new year, will we trust and believe and rest in his promises and whatever his provision are till we're there? You know, Ira Sankey was the great Methodist songwriter. He was beloved by both Moody and Spurgeon in the late 19th century. After serving in the Civil War, he was hired by the U.S. government, and they used him um, in their sort of rebuilding time. And during that period, he had time to write a lot of hymns and sing them. In October of 1871, he and Moody were in the midst of a great revival there in Chicago, and the great Chicago fire broke out. They barely escaped with their lives. Sankey ended up watching the city burn from a robot out in Lake Michigan. He sat there, and he prayed in that boat, not understanding even himself why this was happening, but learning while he was in that rowboat. He said, learning to trust his God in the wilderness. Through the years, he began to lose his eyesight until he was completely blind. He was completely blind the last five years of his life. He and Fanny Crosby, who was blinded as a little girl, wrote a song together in 1899 called A Hymn of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, a hymn. When asked how he could continue, how he could keep on being so grateful despite all of these heartaches and these pains and these sufferings and now blindness in the midst of this sorrow, his was his answer. He said this. He said, trusting Jesus, that is all. His music set to lyrics, trusting Jesus, was the favorite of Dr. W.B. Riley and D.O. Moody. And the simple, powerful truth of that hymn, beloved, ought to resonate with all of us here. Trusting as the moments fly. Trusting as the days go by. Trusting Him whate'er befall. Trusting Jesus, that is all. Singing if my way is clear. Praying if the path be drear. If in danger of Him I call. Trusting Jesus, that is all. Trusting Him while life shall last. Trusting Him till earth be past. Till within the jasper wall, trusting Jesus, that is all. That is all, Pastor? Really? Really, Sankey, that is all? It's all about trust and believing and faith? Oh yeah, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. How about this year? Starting on the first month of this year, how about we decide to be content with the provision He gives us because we believe God, whether we're in the wilderness or we're in Canaan. God's people said, let's bow our heads, shall we, for a moment.
I wonder who might say this morning, Pastor Blaylock, I'm here today, and by God's mercy, God's grace, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. But I needed this reminder. God has spoken to my heart about something. I'm a Christian, but I needed this message with no one looking, heads are bowed. You say, that's me. As a testimony to the Lord, I can raise my hand right now. Who would say that as a believer? God's speaking to your heart, and praise the Lord, and amen, and amen. You know, this is going to be an amazing year. It's an election year. It's an interesting year. And in its own way, in very individual lives, there will be trials and tribulations and sometimes great blessings and mountaintop experiences. The only way you get through this year victorious and better is by believing God, trusting God, accepting and embracing His provision, whatever it is. Some of you here in a group this size, without doubt, you know, there were 12 apostles and one of them was not a true believer. And just by that margin alone, there would be 20, 30 people in this room that are not saved, even though if you're a church member. Pastor, I'm here today and I'm not sure that I'm saved, that my name is written in heaven, but I want to be sure and I need to be sure. You see, the greatest provision God ever gave was his son dying on a cross, shedding his blood for your sins. That's the first provision you have to truly embrace and accept. And if you haven't done that, today is the day of salvation. That's me, Pastor Blaylock. I'm not sure if I die today, I'd be in heaven. But will you pray for me that I could be sure? With heads bowed, who would say that? Would you lift your hands really high? Not sure. God bless you. You know what? God bless you, ma'am. I see your hand. Others, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Would you pray for me that it could be sure? All right. To all those who are saved this morning, let's go through this year. Let's start it out. Keep on going, learning the lessons of the children of God. Let's believe him. It says it was because they believed not. That was the real problem. Father, bless the imitation time. We believe. Help thou our unbelief. Strengthen our faith. I ask, Father, that this year, more than any year in our our Christian lives, We will trust you. Trusting Jesus, that is all. For those who have asked for prayer, draw them to you. For those who are not saved, especially speak to their hearts, continue to please. Use this time of invitation for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' precious name, amen.